Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Stewardship podcast. I'm your host, Matt Hewn, one of the editors of Beyond Stewardship, New Approaches to Creation Care. Beyond Stewardship is available from Calvin Press at calvin.edu slash press and major online retailers. The Beyond Stewardship podcast is a series of interviews with the chapter authors of Beyond Stewardship. My very special guest today is Deborah Reenstra, author of Chapter 8 in Beyond Stewardship. What's that? Naming, knowing, delighting, caring, suffering. Welcome, Deborah. Hey, Matt. It's nice to be here. I'm so glad that you can be here today, and I'm so thrilled to talk with you about your chapter. I know you as a professor of English studies at Calvin University, but why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more completely for the listeners. Sure, so I teach early British literature in the English department as well as creative writing. We all teach written rhetoric and uh, another class that I teach would be world lit. So we, we all have to be quite flexible in the English department, do a lot of different things. I've been at Calvin for 23 years, hard to believe, but it's true. And uh, I'm a Michigan native. Oh, so great. you can see that in the, in the chapter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How is it that an English professor with expertise in Brit lit has become interested in and concerned about the issues that are in, form the core of Beyond Stewardship. <laughs> People keep asking me this. Um, <laughs> about a year ago, I, I felt the call of the birdies in my backyard. Yeah. That's sort of true. <laughs> but there's more to it than that. Um, I feel like looking back, I've long been deeply connected to place just felt that as part of who I am. Um, I didn't really have the language to talk about it. When I was a kid, I went through kind of a taxonomy phase and learned all the breeds of dog, all the breeds of horses, and never really went into plant identification. But that sort of taxonomical impulse was there as a kid. I enjoyed science all the way through school right into college. Um, I just loved books and writing more. So I remember sitting in chemistry class one day and uh, thinking, this is all very fascinating, but what could it be a metaphor for? Um, <laughs> you know, the model of the atom, what could that be a metaphor? And I thought, okay, well, oh, maybe I just, something right there, I just need it? to go into English. That's great. Um, recently, I've been involved for quite a few years in bringing nature writers to the Festival of Faith and Writing. And um, just this past festival, in preparing to have Bill McKibben here, I got deeply convicted about climate change, reading his stuff and um, moving on from his stuff to other writers too. And finally, I think it's just maybe a time of life issue. Um, I've been reading Robin Wall Kimmerer, the wonderful Potawatomi botanist. And um, she quotes uh, Paula Gunn Allen in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and um, does this little this little uh, inventory of the phases of a woman's life. I don't know how this works for men, but the phases of a woman's life where you begin as a daughter and then you become in some way or another a mother and then a teacher and then you care about community and your circle of care keeps widening so that later in life you begin to care for all creation. And I I think that's been true for me. That's really cool. Yeah, um, that for some reason my kids are grown now. I'm still, of course, a teacher. Um, I, I am you know, sort of raising my head and looking up and looking out and becoming more concerned about um, those larger issues. I'm not sure that's very different for men. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the reasons that David Warners and I started this project is we have been working 
in our fields for several decades, and we wanted to pop our heads up too and say, yeah. all right, what does this really look like? What does this all mean, the experiences that we've had? Yeah. And uh, we wanted to bring other authors around that same idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. Each chapter in Beyond Stewardship begins with a story, and your chapter begins with a story of a dog. Can you set the scene <laughs> and tell us how that dog features in your chapter? So around 1994, we were living in Pella, Iowa. We had one tiny little girl, um, my husband and I. And we had this neighbor that we were sort of afraid of. He was kind of a recluse. And he had a dog, a hunting dog, Chocolate Lab, in a kennel outdoors uh, year-round. And this poor dog never got out of the kennel and uh, was really quite neglected, and we didn't know what to do about it, but my tiny little one-year-old daughter just loved this doggy. So we'd go over there every day, and you know, I never really knew what to, to make of it or what to do, but I did know that my little daughter loved this dog. Um, so when we were beginning this work on these chapters, for some reason that story just came back to me mm. and became the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. So this dog was well-treated or not well-treated? How no, was so it going on? No, so the there? poor doggy was in this outdoor kennel year-round. And in the winter, I would sit there in the, in the little study area we had in one of the rooms, which was right, uh, the dog was right outside the window. And that poor dog would just bark and bark and bark all day. It was cold. Yeah. It was super cold. This was Iowa. And uh, so besides driving me crazy, I just felt sorry for this poor little doggy. Now, how did you decide upon this particular story to bring it into your chapter? And how do you think your daughter and this animal bring readers into your story? Yeah. So this is one of those little things that happens in life that you forget about completely until some moment many years later when you need it for some reason. And this ah. happens a lot for writers. It's something I talk to my students about especially nonfiction, but not necessarily. Um, fiction writers do this too, where you just look back into your mind and these little stories that you haven't needed for years somehow pop out. So mm. I think that was the case here. I wanted something that anyone could connect with, something really simple, the sort of thing that could happen to anyone. Some of the other authors are writing about these ecological adventures they've had, and that's great, but I thought, you know, let's begin with something really simple. And I wanted a story that introduced the power of language and especially naming. And so that was useful in this story because for a while we didn't know the doggy's name, but eventually a neighbor told us, oh, well, the dog's name is Penny. Yeah. And that made a big difference um, to how we cared about that poor dog. What did that change? How did knowing the dog's name change you or change your your daughter? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, my daughter could learn the name, and when we went over to pet the little dog, she would pat its nose and say, Hi, Penny. Yeah. <laughs> so it felt like we were coming into a different kind of relationship. It wasn't just the neighbor's random nameless dog. It was Penny, our little doggy neighbor. Um, sadly, there was really nothing we could do about the dog's conditions. I called the Humane Society once, and, you know, it he wasn't doing anything that they could define as abusive. So there was nothing we could do. So we just visited the dog every day and gave her a little companionship. And I don't know if it made a difference, but 
I, I think it, it made a difference for my little daughter to know the dog's name and to have this little daily ritual of going to visit yeah. it. And yeah. Those things are precious with the yeah. kids, and aren't they? She's definitely a dog lover now. She has a big, loopy, crazy German shepherd. <laughs> and it all started then. It all started then, yes. Penny. So each of the chapters in Beyond Stewardship takes a turn at some point where the story sort of helps you reflect on the idea of stewardship and moves the chapter in a new direction. And if you'd be okay with it, I'd love to ask you to read a piece in your chapter where you do that. Okay. So here's the section where I make that turn. Okay. One important problem with the term stewardship is the implicit presumption that it is both possible and easy for us to learn what we need to know about the world to steward its natural resources well. In other words, the term stewardship can effectively shield us from the ongoing challenge of deeply understanding the world. And without that understanding, we cannot live in healthy kinship with the creation. We cannot fulfill our role as earth keepers, and we cannot be responsible place keepers. Learning what is needed to steward the non-human creation is very difficult, especially because many of us cannot name more than a few of the plants, animals, waters, or landforms around us. Indeed, many of us are so insulated from the non-human creation that we hardly speak of it at all, or we speak of it in simplified, objectifying terms, glossing over our ignorance and obscuring the complexities and intricacies of our world. What we cannot name, we cannot properly see, let mm -hmm. alone understand. So as we seek to fulfill our responsibilities toward the creation, we can begin at the beginning. We can learn the names for things. Learning names, we might say, is the first step in creation care. When we begin by learning names, we activate a deeper knowledge that prepares us to receive the gifts of delight, caring, and suffering. Boy, there's so much even in just that one paragraph, isn't there? I mean, That's why there's a whole chapter. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, really, that, that becomes the fulcrum around which the rest of you unpack that the rest of the yeah. way, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was particularly struck when you're reading it now about the idea of limited knowledge and the fact that we can um, objectify the creation unless we um, start down a path of knowing the names. That's really right. powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you see as the benefits and the limitations of the, the concept of Christian environmental stewardship? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is what we all wrestled with over the summer as we worked together and then as we each went and did our writing project. So here's how I would summarize it, and maybe others would summarize it differently. Sure. Um, so stewardship implies responsibility and care, and that's good. However, it also implies a sharp distinction between us and the rest of creation yeah. and an unquestioned superiority. If we are stewards, we are in charge. Yep. But our relationship with the rest of creation is really much more complicated than that. We are made of the same stuff. We have many of the same physiological needs. There's so much we don't know. So the term stewardship, as I began to think about it, just isn't humble enough. So that quality of humility became really important. And also I think it isn't urgent enough. The idea of stewardship seems to me that, well, you know, everything is kind of status quo and we have our job and the creation has its job and we do our job. 
But we are in a state where there is a, a much more urgent crisis. And in some ways, it's bigger than we are. Um, so I, I think the way we understand our responsibility before God in relationship to creation is undergoing, um, rightly and importantly, uh, a deep kind of change. Yeah. That sense of urgency is something that I've been attuned to the last couple of uh, months, having gone to a couple of conferences and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I found it interesting that you made that connection, that stewardship doesn't give us that, that urgency. Um, and names and names feature heavily in your chapter, and I think you see those names, learning names, as maybe the start of a path that, well, all paths lead to a place, mm -hmm. but maybe one of those places is a sense of urgency? I think it will happen very quickly. Okay. Yeah, it certainly has for me. Yeah, okay, you know, interesting. The, the more you know, the, the more quickly you get to that, that sense of... Um, I didn't know that, oh no. <laughs> and right. we're seeing that a lot in nature writing these days, that nature writing these days, yes, there's still an element of celebration, there's still this delight of knowledge, uh, but there's a lot of lament and grief in nature writing these days because of the looming crisis of climate change and because of species extinction in particular. So the, the more I read, the more I'm drawn into that sense of urgency. So tell us a little bit more about names. Maybe you can start by giving us some of your, I don't know, your favorite names. Sure. Names. Well, I, I'm realizing this summer that one of the reasons that I had so much fun getting to know my colleagues in the sciences and the science division and doing this kind of reading is it's just a whole new world of language. Okay. So I'm learning all these fantastic terms and <laughs> these wonderful words and concepts. And of uh -huh. course, everything is still a metaphor for me. I must be driving my science friends crazy because I immediately jump to what things are metaphors for. But in the chapter, I mention a couple really fun names. Um, the little flower Dutchman's breeches. Mm -hmm. They look like little pairs of pants hanging on a clothesline. I think that's hilarious. Yep. They really do. Um, I mentioned some words for winds, fell, flan, and flam. They're all Scottish words for wind, different kinds of wind. Mm -hmm. I mentioned this little creature called the tasseled wobegong, which is like a shark with ruffles. It's from Australia. Yeah. Hilarious. Um, our colleague Deanna Van Dyke, uh, her field is called Aeolian Geomorphology, which like in itself is a poem. <laughs> I'm sort of jealous I didn't think to go into that field just so I could say that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I can see that you're someone who just delights in language, just absolutely delights in it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's mm -hmm. fun. There's so much to delight in. And one of the pieces of your chapter is, well, not a piece, the subtitle of your chapter mm -hmm. is Naming, Knowing, Delighting, Caring, Suffering. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to propose a speed round here. <laughs> okay. if, you can, if, if you can play along with me for a little bit. How about if I say each of these words and you share with the listeners how that word plays a role in your chapter? And okay. maybe you can start, if it works, each response with how the word plays out in the story of Penny, mm -hmm. your daughter, and you. Okay, so are you up for this? I'm ready. Okay, naming. Go. So we learned Penny's name, and then we cared about her more. So the idea there is that 
when you learn a name, you're drawn into relationship. Yeah. Knowing. So once you learn the name, you want to know more, even if it's just what the name means. Now, in Penny's case, that's not so much. But uh, I think in her case, we just wanted to continue to go visit her. But presumably, if you're curious, once you know the name, you want to know more. So I want to know more about the, what do you call it, the tasseled woolbegong or something? Yeah, it's a type of carpet shark. That's all I know. It lives in Australia, or yeah. lives near Australia, um, and it looks very ruffly. That's all I know about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next, delighting. Right. So for me, as you say, part of yeah. the delight is just the name, the word itself, and the origin, word origins, the reasons that it's named that way. Right. You, you suddenly get involved in all these interesting complications. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Caring. So ideally, you learn the name, you begin to know a little bit, and once you know about something, you start to care about it. So here's an example of that. Okay. I discovered in my own yard um, a volunteer, right, a plant that I didn't plant, but there it is. Yeah. It's in the shelter of my oak leaf hydrangea. So I def what is this thing? Is this a weed? Should I cut it down? So I have an app on my phone. It's a plant identification app. I don't know if our colleague Dave Warners knows about these. But he doesn't need that. I know. He doesn't need it, but the rest of us do. Anyway, so I awesome. use the app. Yeah. Turns out it's an eastern red bud. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. This is a tree. This is a, a young tree that grew here for no reason. Now I'm delighted by that. And now I'm, now I'm asking myself, okay, well, I can't let it grow here. How can I care for this tree? Where can I put it? I'm going to dig this thing up and put it somewhere else. And I'm going to continue to delight in it and care for it and nurture it. And I'm going to have a redbud tree. Yeah. So it's just an example of if things go well, knowing something's name leads to knowledge, leads to delight, and that leads to care. I think this is true. Ideally, this is true in human relationships as well. Yeah. You just said, if things go well. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Maybe what if things don't go well? Sure. Well, I, I think when things don't go well, we don't care. So there's indifference, there might be ignorance, uh, there might be selfishness. So it's certainly possible to know the names of things around you and not care uh, about them or not yeah. be curious to know more. Naming can also be a form of Power and control, can yes, it not? Yes, right. So once you know something's name, you can also consider yourself um, the boss of it. <laughs> yeah. the, you can determine the thing's future in ways that, and maybe, maybe um, timbering the use of forest is one version of that, where in order to practice, uh, in order for the lumber industry to make money, they need to know a lot about trees, but that doesn't mean they have to necessarily care about the trees or about the forest or about the long-term good. They don't have to. Yeah. They can know enough to destroy the forest, and this is certainly happening. It has happened uh, in many places in the world. Not with everybody. Some forestry, um, some timber industry people really do care about sustainability, but it's also possible to know and let that knowledge uh, lead to destruction. Yeah. I didn't necessarily mean to go in a dark place there, but it, it's, yeah, it's interesting important. that there are yeah. there are two sides to that. Naming can also be a way of forgetting, right? If you change yes. the name of something, you can forget it. Sure. There's there's uh, challenges all the way along. But in your list, naming, knowing, delighting, caring, suffering, naming is a really great place to start. 
And that brings me to think back to the creation story and what role did naming play at the beginning and the yeah. creation story? So I loved doing the research for this part because there's that, that little tiny section in Genesis 2 where Adam names the creatures. Yeah. And I just got to thinking, why is that there? Why is that an important little part? It's just a couple verses. Yeah. Um, and so one interpretation as well, this shows Adam's dominion over the animals. So it's, it's a story, uh, it's a little piece about authority and power. And maybe that's partly true. But if you read the section, it's so delightful. And there's this sense of play about it. God is waiting to see what Adam would call the creatures. Mm -hmm. It's as if they're having little playtime together. It's also the first instance in the Bible where a human being uses language. And I never thought about that before. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. And so if you think about it that way, it's, a, it's another way of affirming that language is about relationship. So by Adam naming these creatures, that then he comes into relationship with them. And I thought it was very interesting. I, I went and looked at Reformation commentaries uh, and discovered that the Reformers, so Calvin and Luther, had this notion, and they got it from medieval commentary, that the reason Adam could name the animals is that he had this pre-fall deep knowledge about oh. creatures. Mm -hmm. So the minute he saw whatever it was, the tiger, the unicorn, the dragon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is, those ones. This is pre-Noah, so yeah. <laughs> Could have been. The minute he saw the, the yeah. black-footed ferret or whatever, um, he had this deep knowledge of it so that he could name it, right? So this is this mythological way, myth in the sense of meaning-making, this mythological way of talking about language as the means through which we come into relationship. And this is also true... In a, in a moment when uh, the next moment in the story is God bringing Eve to Adam. Now, neither of them have those names at this point. Ad, that name, Adam, isn't really a name. It just means dirt creature. It's yeah. related to the Hebrew word for, for soil, Adam from the Adama. So it, really, until this point, he's not called Adam. He's just the dirt creature. And then the female dirt creature comes along, and that's when... Adam says, and you can just tell it's this moment of, aha, he says, oh, you are Isha and I'm Ish. So he comes up for a name for himself and for, and for Eve, who we call her now, um, at the very same time. So he names the animals first, and then he finds mutual names, matching names for himself and for the female. And I just think that's a wonderful way of thinking about language as being about relationship, about delight, about partnership. I don't think we always think about it that way. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. I think that the medieval commentary is really interesting in that they start with knowing and then they get to the name. Yeah. But you put names in front of knowing. Because we don't know anymore. Yeah. You know, so it's a way of thinking about, about gaining knowledge as a kind of redemptive task. And I love that. I think that fits so well with Calvin's mission. And I, I think that's just, it fits so well with um, the entire um, narrative of the Bible. That to name and to know and to draw closer in relationship and knowledge with something is part of our redemptive task. So you started with naming. We just talked about that a little bit. But the last bit in your list is suffering. And that's an interesting place as well um, to end. So how does one get to that 
suffering stage, and why did you choose to end there? Well, you want to start with the delight, right? You yeah, there you go. Start with the bad news. <laughs> um, suffering is part of relationship. If we care about something or someone, we will have compassion, and that means to suffer with, to feel with. So we just need to remember that, especially right now. And as I was saying before, um, those who are watching and paying attention and who are caring and looking at the non-human creation are very immediately seeing the grief and suffering of creation, the groaning of creation, we say, based right. on Romans 8, right? It's very evident right now. So you get there very quickly. However, um, and this is where I end the chapter, that to suffer with also brings gifts. They're painful gifts, but they're also gifts. The gifts of humility yeah. and the gift of wonder. Mm -hmm. um, wonder at the intricacy and grandness. And even wonder at our human ability to grieve. Um, we, are, we are the species that can grieve for the loss of another species. This is Aldo Leopold. And how remarkable that is. So even within that suffering, and I, I think we're called to that too, we're called to do that suffering. It's part of our human vocation. But even within that, there are, there are gifts that come. Some gifts are fun and celebrated. Some gifts are hard and difficult. I mean, I guess that would, those would be some of the difficult gifts, huh? Exactly right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The target audience for Beyond Stewardship is Christians with a passion for and concerns about the non-human creation. What do you hope that readers will take away from your chapter? Or how do you think that your chapter assists people in the target audience to care for creation differently and better? Mm. One of the things I wondered about as I got involved in this group is, first of all, what could I bring as a literature person? And that's yeah. where I got to language immediately. Right. But I also wondered, what is a, a place for people to begin? So the issues that we talked about swirl around each other, they interrelate, and sometimes it's hard to find an entry point into all of this. So I hope my chapter could be one very simple place to begin, especially for someone who's kind of new to thinking about this and the, the answer for where to begin is just start right where you are and start noticing what is right in front of you. This is classic writerly advice, right? <laughs> Pay attention, start here, start now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And do it with a, a little bit of, e equip yourself to do that a little bit. Yeah. Names are part of that equipping then. Yeah, and finding ways to find out the names. So your app on your phone or books or yeah. people that you know or... Yeah. Um, the answers are right around you. You just have to look for them. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, as we were going through the process of Beyond Stewardship, we, we had your chapter initially as one of the very first ones. Mm -hmm. And then later we switched it to be uh, kind of in the middle, but, at, mm -hmm. but just after the point where we say, you know, here are some ways forward, here are some new things that you can, you can do or ways you can think differently about the non-human creation. So yeah. given that you... Um, Given that statement about what you would like your chapter to be, it seems like it, it landed in the right place in the end. I agree. I think it's in a good spot. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, good. How did your thinking and your perceptions benefit from being involved in Beyond Stewardship? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it was fun. It, yeah, was it was just fun to be together last summer and to talk over things with a diverse group that 
came at this from so many different angles. I was definitely a learner, more than an expert in the group, and that was fun. I enjoyed that. Each person in the group advanced the conversation in different ways. Um, all of the chapter writers, but also our observers were very helpful too. We had these four um, people who weren't writing chapters, but who were just reflecting back what they heard in our conversations. And it was not only a delightful thing, but I, every day we learned a lot from each other, I think. Yeah. The process involved a lot more collaboration, maybe, than is typical for an edited book or an edited volume. And I'm wondering if you could share an anecdote or a story about the writing process and how that unfolded for you, and maybe some links that you then were able to observe between your chapter and other chapters. Sure. So for me, um, hearing other people and their concerns, and especially during our just our discussions as we sat and uh, proposed what we were talking about and then heard other people respond to that, um, I think the, the other writers and observers offered a lot of really helpful correctives for me. Oh, interesting. So you go off in one direction, and then I would say Gail and Jamie in particular, not that they were the only ones, but um, mm -hmm. you know, Gail would always remind us about power dynamics. So Gail would say, yeah, but remember, some people don't have the power to make a change. And that was a really helpful reminder. Or Jamie, our environmental studies person, um, would always remind us about humility. And he would say, yeah, but we often don't know what to do. It's not obvious. We make mistakes. So those, those two reminders especially were really helpful correctives um, for the ways that I was thinking about my chapter. When you get in the mix with a whole bunch of people, that's when you can start having those kind of fun interactions and yeah. um, bounce ideas off each other and so forth. Mm -hmm. It's academia at its best, right? When we get a bunch of people from different kinds of expertise together and we all address a, a shared topic and um, contribute our areas of expertise yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, that's nearly all the time we have for today. My thanks to you, Deborah, for joining me uh, for this episode of the Beyond Stewardship podcast. And I wonder if you have any upcoming projects that listeners might want to know a little bit more about. Sure. I um, write an essay every two weeks for The Twelve, which is a, a blog that um, is sponsored by the Reform Journal. And you can find that by searching for the Reform Journal or for The Twelve blog. And I also have a website where all of my writing is stored and there's uh, ways to find it there. And you can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at Deborah K. Reinstra. Well, I was just going to ask you where can they find more about you and your work, but you are seems like you're active in some of those areas, and that's really awesome. They should be able to find you without any trouble. Thank Try you. Try to be, yep. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Beyond Stewardship podcast. Thank you, Deborah, for joining me, and goodbye, everyone. Beyond Stewardship is available from Calvin Press at calvin.edu slash press and major online retailers.